Today's reading is John chapter 11, verses 30 to 44. You can follow along in the service sheet. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he who not could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Good evening, everybody. I'm going to preach from here. Thank you, Clive. Good evening. I'm going to preach from here because it's a TNG service and we can do what we want. Something to be closer to everybody um, as uh, well. Uh, before we look at anything else, why don't we uh, pray? Uh, Father, we just praise you. We praise you for your word, the word uh, of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to see and that you would open our hearts to be changed. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Amen. Uh, Now, I I don't really, but if you can remember way back at the beginning of the pandemic, you might remember that one of the kind of big news headlines was uh, the most Googled questions. And often the most Googled questions at the start of the pandemic were questions about religion. How do I pray? Who is Jesus? Even... Is there death after life? And that question, is there death after life, is the question we want to think about this evening. And the answer, before you leave in the middle of my sermon or whatever, I want you to know the answer is yes. There is death after life. It would be terrible if you left not really being sure what I had said. So the answer is yes. And the answer is yes because Jesus gives indestructible life to those he loves. The passage that Ellen just read for us, thank you Ellen, uh, is John chapter 11. It would be useful to have a Bible open tonight because we're going to be going a little beyond that reading to each side. So if you haven't got a Bible open, uh, flick would open. It's page 1077. Uh, and we're going to be concentrating on Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, but also the disciples as well. Uh, I know as I, I come to this passage tonight, I know uh, that some of us this evening Uh, not that recently, have faced death. Uh, And in fact, we all have and we know what it's like to love, to lose, and go through the pain of grieving. 
And maybe the words that Jesus speaks in this passage have been a great comfort for you, have really helped you in those dark, really sad days. And I think one of the most amazing things about these I am sayings of Jesus, other than they're true, is when Jesus says them. Jesus doesn't just stand up one day and begin to say, I am this, I am that, I am uh, fill in the blank here. But Jesus waits. And Jesus reveals these when he has, he has needy people in front of him. So, for example, whenever Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he says it to people who are hungry. Whenever Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he says it to a temple that is covered in darkness. Whenever Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, as we heard last week, he says it to people who haven't got good leadership. And this week, we're thinking about, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't stand up and say this in a sermon when he's preaching in the synagogue, but he says it whenever he and his friends are faced with death. Whenever Jesus, whenever Mary, whenever Martha most clearly feel the pain of loss, whenever death has taken somebody that Jesus dearly loves and cares for, this is how Jesus responds. This is what he says. It's in the midst of the need of people that Jesus says, I am satisfaction, I am trust, I am light, and I am life. And what I would love us to see from God's Word this evening is that these words of Jesus, as amazing and as comforting they are, aren't just for times whenever we're faced with death, aren't just for times uh, whenever there's a funeral service going on. But these words are to help you and me live even more courageously for Jesus every single day of our lives. For every single day of our lives, these words are helpful to us. Let's uh, get stuck into our passage. Uh, if you have a look at the uh, chapter 11 and verse 1, uh, this is what we didn't read, but our passage opens uh, with the news that a man called Lazarus is ill, and we're introduced to his, his two sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the first time they're mentioned in John's gospel. Uh, John gives a, a little note as to who, Martha, or who Mary is uh, that she's the one who will pour ointment on the feet of Jesus in the next chapter. Uh, but these are completely two new characters. Maybe the original readers of John would have known them or heard stories uh, about them. So that's why we are drawing attention to their names. Uh, from what we read of these two people, they have a good relationship with Jesus. Uh, whenever we read in the Gospels, we often hear about strangers like Zacchaeus, like the officials uh, like the official in chapter 4 of John who maybe have heard of Jesus, heard of his healing power, and they want to meet him. Uh, but here we have people who intimately know Jesus. They're Jesus's friends, people who know him and people who love him, and more importantly, people who Jesus loves as well. And they're right to Jesus because they know he's his friend. They know that he can help them. So they're right to Jesus and they explain, look, Jesus, our brother Lazarus is ill. He who you love is ill. And when Jesus gets this letter or this note, what he does next is quite surprising because he does nothing. You might think, if you got a note to say that your friend was ill, could you come and help him? You would probably dash out, you would probably get up out of your seat now and go and run to them as fast as you could. But Jesus stays put. In fact, he stays where he is for another two days. Isn't it funny whenever we think of the official son that Jesus was willing to heal a complete stranger from a distance, but yet not willing to help the person that he's supposed to love? 
And the news that Jesus does nothing becomes even more surprising when we actually learn that Lazarus isn't just sick anymore, but Lazarus has died. Later, whenever Jesus reaches Bethany, we learn that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So if we do some quick maths, we see that uh, Jesus has waited for two days. It takes two days for Jesus to get to Bethany from where he is, so that's four days. So it's very likely whenever Jesus receives the letter telling him that Lazarus is ill, it's very likely that Lazarus has already died. What's went wrong? Has Jesus made a mistake? Has he got the timing wrong? Has he forgot to go? What is Jesus doing? Well, the answer is, of course, Jesus hasn't got it wrong. He knows exactly what he is doing. And it's his conversation with his ever-confused disciples in verses 11 to 15 that Jesus shares with them that he knows Lazarus has already died and that him waiting was not a mistake, but it was his intention the whole time. Because Jesus is waiting that God's glory might be revealed. It's not through a sick man getting better that God will reveal his glory, but through a dead man being brought to life. And this little section is a good reminder for us that whenever God works, God primarily works for his glory. Uh, John Piper is an American pastor who I really, really like, and he's a little phrase, which is this. God is most glorified in us whenever we are most satisfied in him. Whenever we're most reliant on God's, that's when God is most glorified. But I think the opposite is also true. Whenever God is most glorified, that's when I will be satisfied in him. Think of it from Mary and Martha's perspective. They've seen their brother get sick, get worse and worse, see him getting weaker and weaker. They send help. They get no reply from Jesus. They bury him in a tomb, and they leave him there. And all through that, God is working for his glory. Working so that Mary and Martha might love and might be satisfied in him even more. That they would only want the life that Jesus can give. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can think back to a time in your life that was actually really hard, maybe when you cried or when you suffered loss, but you can go, actually, I can see God working through that. I can see how that situation in my life led to God being glorified because through it, I have been even more satisfied in him. And whenever God works for his glory, we know he always works for our good. It's not that God sometimes decides to work for glory, And then sometimes he decides to work for our good. But those two things go together. Jesus doesn't sit where he is because he's waiting to be glorified. It's not that he ignores his love. It's not that he's a self-serving God that doesn't really love Lazarus after all. But he's waiting because he knows that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha will love him more and that they will be most satisfied in him whenever his glory is revealed. So we have these immediate events unfolding in front of us. Lazarus is sick, Lazarus has died, and what is Jesus going to do? But we also have some background events going on to the side uh, as well. Whenever we meet Jesus and the disciples in John chapter 10 and 11 and 12, uh, life isn't easy for them. Uh, They're being persecuted. There's a little bit of danger uh, with traveling around with Jesus at this time because the Jews are angry. 
Because Jesus has said that he and the Father are one, and that cannot be allowed to be said. Jesus must be stoned. In fact, Jesus has come close to being stoned so many times already in John's Gospel, and at this point, Jesus decides, actually, it's better if I leave to avoid this threat. So he removes himself from around Jerusalem, and he goes up north to where John the Baptist had been been baptizing. And it's this context that make the disciples react in the way they do in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. What do they say to Jesus? Whenever Jesus proposes going to see Lazarus, what do the disciples say? But Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you want to go back? They can't believe what Jesus is proposing. They can't believe that Jesus is even contemplating going near Jerusalem, because going towards Jerusalem would mean trouble, It might mean imprisonment, and it might even mean death for Jesus and for his disciples as well. You can imagine the conversations between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus, you want to go back for somebody's funeral? I'm sure Lazarus was a really good friend of yours, but he's dead. Surely it's not worth the risk to go anywhere near. And Thomas's comment in verse 16 kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, maybe I'm giving Thomas a hard time. Thomas does tend to get a bit of a hard time of it, doesn't he? Uh, but it sounds pretty sarcastic to me. But also, it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? Because we know as Christians to follow Jesus does mean death. Whenever Jesus uh, speaks in Matthew 16, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew's words tell us that Thomas is right. The only way that you or I or anybody else can save our lives is to lose it, to forsake it, and to live for God. And when we trust ourselves to God, no matter what happens in our life, we know we will be safe, even if there's persecution, even if there is death. Jesus talks to his disciples in Luke's gospel, and Jesus tells them there that even if their closest family turn against them, even if they face persecution, even if they are killed for believing in Jesus, not one hair on top of their heads will be lost. Jesus says, even though they die, not one hair on the top of their heads will die. Uh, These little interactions between Jesus and And the disciples are often one of my favorite parts of the Gospels, not because they're often quite funny and the disciples are often quite silly and they don't really know what they're doing, uh, but because here we see Jesus at work. Jesus doesn't call these 12 men to follow him because he's lonely. He doesn't call them to follow him because he wants some friends, but he calls them to follow him because he wants to teach them how to lead his church. These, this is kind of like a church training 101. These 12 men following Jesus around are learning and are being equipped what to do after Jesus ascends back into heaven, how are they going to look after the church? We often paint the lives of the disciples as pretty clueless men, and then when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, they suddenly wise up, and they get all this extra information, like they download lots of files off the database in heaven, and they suddenly know what to do. But actually, the Holy Spirit does a lot in their lives, but the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see what Jesus had been teaching them all along. It must have been amazing to be there when they finally click with whatever Jesus is trying to show them. Whenever they say, John, do you think Jesus meant this when he said that? 
It just clicks with them whenever the Holy Spirit comes. These disciples in this moment are facing persecution. And that persecution for them is only going to get worse as they live out the calling God has given them, as they lead the church. But these men know that they are safe, that they are secure whenever they trust their lives to God. Jesus says as much in verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying, it's daytime. The light of the world, me, we're here. There's work to be done. There's work to be done in the light. There's work to be done by the light. And we will not stumble. Even though people persecute us, even though people plot against us, if you're with me, guys, you will not stumble. And so it's with this little group of really afraid disciples that Jesus travels back to Bethany. He has told them that the Jewish leaders, even though they plot, they plot in vain. Because with Jesus, with the light, even though these disciples might die, they will be safe. After two days of traveling, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Martha rushes out to see him. And it's to Martha that Jesus reveals the truth that he is resurrection and life. Notice the context. It's after Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's in this place of doubt. Whenever Martha is doubting, Jesus, why have you come so late? Jesus, why did you not come whenever we sent that letter to you? Why have you waited so long? Because if you'd been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't die. It's in that place of doubt. It's whenever Mary is questioning, or Martha is questioning everything she's ever learned and knows about Jesus. Whenever she's weak after crying her eyes out, after she's exhausted and frustrated with Jesus, it's when Jesus reveals this truth to her. Whenever Jesus reveals his love to her and tells her who he is and what he can do. And notice that Jesus doesn't say to Martha, Martha, I can give you life. Or Martha, I can give your brother life. But Jesus says, I am life. I am the resurrection. Whenever we trust in God, we just don't get spiritual life, resurrection life, eternal life as a bonus. But whenever we go after Jesus, whenever we follow him, we are following after life himself. Jesus Jesus finishes his statement off with a question. And it's a good question for us to reflect on. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that I am the only one who can give life? I'm the only one that can give life to your brother. I'm the only one that can give life to you. Do you believe, Martha, that if you trust in me, that you will never die, Martha, even if you taste death? Do you believe that? Do you believe, Martha, that I love you so much that I will not abandon you to death, not for even one second? Martha, do you believe that God gives indestructible life to those he loves? And praise God for Martha, because Martha says, yes. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And there we have it. There we have the glory of God on display. I don't really know, but I think if it wasn't for the death of her brother, 
if it wasn't for the pain that she's went through the past couple of days, I don't think Martha would ever have been in that place to fully accept Jesus the way she did. To say, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the resurrection and the life, the Son of God coming into the world. Now, Jesus isn't going to leave it there because it would be a bit strange if he just said that he was the resurrection and the life and he didn't do anything. He says, he, he talks the talk, and now Jesus is going to walk the walk. He's brought to the tomb, and what does he do? Surprisingly, Jesus cries. Jesus, who knows more than anybody else who he is, Jesus, who knows more than anybody else that he's about to bring Lazarus back to, from the dead, he cries. Here we see our Savior weeping because he hates death. Here we see our Savior lose somebody that he loves. He's faced with loss. He's faced with grief. And what does he do? He emotionally responds. He cries. I think this is important for us. It's important for me because sometimes when I'm faced with death, I can very quickly think logically and go, well, Jesus promises life and I don't really engage in it. But Jesus shows us, shows us here, yet this, we hold on to resurrection hope whenever we lose somebody that we love. But actually Jesus shows us that it's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. It's okay to say that death is not good and death is not right. So with tears in his eyes, Jesus orders that the tomb be opened. Martha tells them it's going to smell uh, quite bad. Uh, but Jesus says, watch and wait and see Martha. See what the glory of God is going to do. And he calls out Lazarus. And Lazarus, still in his grave clothes, walks out of the tomb. And it's immediately clear that the goal of this miracle, that God will be glorified, has been accomplished. A dead man has been brought back to life. A dead person brought back from the dead. And the glorified um, Jesus says, um, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Spurgeon has a good little quote in this, and he says that if Jesus didn't call Lazarus by name, the whole graveyard would have woken up and come back to life and walked out. Such is his power and such is the glory he has displayed. God's glory is displayed very clearly in this passage, isn't it? That a dead man has been brought back to life. And it would be great if we could end there and say that everybody who's seen this happen believed. But sadly, we can't. Because some people who witness this miracle don't believe. And it's crazy, isn't it? It's a real reminder for me that actually whenever we preach the gospel, it's not up to me to convince people. It's not up to me to have a really sound argument, but it's up to God to open blind eyes. Because here we have people who witnessed a dead man being brought back to life again, and still they said, no, that's not for me. I want to go home now. Still, they said, I'm not going to trust in Jesus, even though he has just brought somebody who was dead for four days in a tomb back to life. And not only that, these people who walk away not only reject Jesus, but they say, actually, let's kill him. The Jewish leaders walk away and they plot the death of Jesus. And it's kind of ironic again, isn't it? Because here we have Jesus, the one who offers life being condemned to death. And in some ways, at the end of this passage, the fears of our disciples are realized, aren't they? 
because Jesus uh, is, is being plotted against. Even Lazarus is being plotted against. Ironically, again, the man who was brought back to life is going to be put to death again because they hate him so much. Um, but the disciples still are in danger. Jesus didn't resolve the anger. He didn't make everybody love him in this moment. There's still hostility against him and against the disciples. They're vindicated in their thoughts and feelings from earlier in the passage. Life for Jesus is about to get much harder again, but he walks by light. He obeys his Father even to death, even to death on a cross. And all that Jesus says, especially this I am statement, is ratified and put in concrete because Jesus himself, showing that he's not afraid of death, goes and dies on a cross and trusts in God because God loves him and God vindicates him, he is raised back to life. Jesus faced rejection. He faced death because he knew his father would look after him. And as the disciples begin to start the church and spread the good news after Jesus ascends up into heaven, whenever they're left to build the church, the men who witness these words, they increasingly are persecuted, aren't they? They increasingly see one by one after one of their friends is martyred, after they get thrown out of the synagogue, after they're beaten in the streets, as the Apostle Paul was dying on a road because he was preaching the gospel. As members of their church are exposed and executed, won't these words of Jesus become even sweeter? Won't they think back and remember as they're being beaten, remember those words that Jesus says, that he is the resurrection and the life? And that new plot that new scheme, that new plan, however great, will ever harm us because we trust in the one who is resurrection and life. God's glory is displayed in giving indestructible resurrection life to those he loves. If you love the Lord, if you're trusting in him tonight, then you have this very same promise. The basic fact is, that if you believe in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, then there's nothing to fear, not even death. I'm nearly finished this evening, but as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know we're probably getting a bit fed of it using, being used in some illustrations, but if COVID has taught me one thing, it's that people in this world are absolutely terrified of dying. They're scared stiff of death. But yet here as Christians, we know the one who is resurrection and life. The crazy thing about uh, that little Google search at the end is these people are crying out for God and they're going to Google to find their answers. How much better if we as Christians, knowing that no plan can stop us, no plot can take us down, that even if we die, we shall live, would courageously and bravely and boldly tell this dying word that we have life. We can say, here is Jesus, the one who gives life, the one who is resurrection. I'm going to uh, hand over to Bethany in a minute um, to steal a little bit of her thunder. We're going to stand and sing after, the, uh, after she comes back up. What is our hope in life and death? Just to say, if trusting in Jesus is not your hope in life and death, 
please think about it. Please reconsider it. And please talk to me or Simon or Edward or anybody here tonight. Shall we pray? Father God, we praise you and we thank you, Jesus. We praise you that you are resurrection and life. We thank you for this story, Lord, in which we see uh, the pain and the bitterness of death, in which we see the fear that persecution brings. But we thank you, Lord, that nothing, no plan made against us shall stand, for you are the one who brings life and who is resurrection. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen.